May I speak to you in the name of the Holy One, Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Good morning, everyone. We have a short gospel reading today, but it is jam-packed, so I'm going to jump right in. So a first reading of this passage seems to be a slam dunk in a very clear direction. It's very tempting to do a straight-up comparison of the two men labeling one of them as lacking in real faith and the other one as humble and therefore exalted. It's been interpreted that way for centuries. An email came through my inbox this week with artistic images of this parable, most of them titled The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. Every one of them supported that straightforward interpretation by depicting the Pharisee in an almost grotesquely self-serving way and the tax collector as abjectly humble. Unfortunately, one of the images I saw went a step further, a step in an incredibly disturbing direction. That image was labeled Ecclesia and Synagoga, Church and Synagogue. In it were two sculptures made in the 13th century for the south transept of Strasbourg Cathedral. The inference is that we should recognize the Pharisee as Synagoga and the tax collector as Ecclesia. Ecclesia is a majestic, tall, crowned woman holding a cross and a cup. Okay, as far as that goes, though the crown gives me pause. Synagoga, on the other hand, is depicted as a blindfolded woman hunched over, carrying a broken spear in one hand and a tablet dramatically falling from the other. The supersessionist medieval theology that inspired these two sculptures is brutally clear. They were made to teach Christians that Jewish people are stubborn and wrong for rejecting Jesus, and to blame and shame Jewish people for not becoming Christians. One would hope that such misguided theology was a thing of the past, but that is not the case. There are far too many recent incidences of American public figures spewing profound anti-Semitism, including the former President of the United States openly threatening our Jewish brothers and sisters on public platforms. Anti-Semitic hate crimes have been on the rise all over this country since 2016, and with vitriol like this, it's easy to understand why. 
It's important for people of all faiths to speak out and push back against this kind of hate speech and against the violence it incites. The mass shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh happened four years ago this very week in the run-up to the midterms then, when the same president and many others in his party were openly stoking anti-Jewish sentiment. Which is why, despite centuries of precedent, the most obvious interpretation of this gospel feels off. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Christianity did not supersede or supplant Judaism. Maybe your immediate reaction to me making those statements is, well, I know, we know that. Yeah, we do. But today, I'm asking us to go even one level deeper. We as Christians need to allow ourselves to recognize that we too likely have this anti-Jewish slander quite deeply ingrained within us, not because we've chosen it purposefully, but because it's been handed down to us for centuries by our fellow Christians, handed down through art and stories and hymns and hate speech and pogroms and the Holocaust. What I'm suggesting is that we've internalized it in ways that we don't even recognize. So with that in mind, let's talk about a second kind of interpretation that we might be tempted to place on this passage. The interpretation that puts the very same anti-Jewish hate speakers into the Pharisee bucket, shall we call it, and those of us who think properly into the humble tax collector bucket. That is a very easy road to travel also. For us to look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, and imagine her as the Pharisee while we Episcopalians are the humble Christians, like the tax collector. So here's the thing about that. Any way of reading this parable that allows us to label other people or groups of people as the Pharisees while putting ourselves in the place of the tax collector recreates the very dynamic we claim this story is pushing back against. All it does is switch the place of the oppressor and the oppressed. But wait, you might be saying, isn't that exactly what the passage says to do? Isn't that the message of both the first and the last line? Here's the first line. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. And the last line, 
I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So yes, it does sound like that's what this passage is saying, which is why it makes a ton of sense for us to want to go there. We're so tempted to use it as a convenient placeholder for our own contempt of those with whom we disagree vehemently. But what struck me as off about that interpretation, and wait for it, because I'm going to borrow a trope from the very people we likely would all like to dump into the Pharisee bucket, is that it doesn't feel like the right answer to the question, what would Jesus do? It doesn't land in my gut as something Jesus would actually say. What it does feel like, and I really need you to bear with me, is exactly the kind of deeply internalized but unrecognized anti-Semitism I was just asking us to look out for. So, you might be thinking, doesn't Jesus always tell us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Well, yes, he does, frequently. But when he speaks that way, the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas says, the idea is not that we flip the tables and become the oppressors of those who have oppressed us. That was never Jesus's message. For him, it was about creating equity, bringing those on the margins into the center of the story, not so they could lord it over their oppressors, but so they could speak the kind of hard truths that need to be heard in order to change the very systems that benefit the few at the expense of the many. The kingdom of God is not about recreating the exact same system of domination in reverse. It's about moving everyone toward full inclusion in God's abundance. So when we use this story as a reversal of fortune narrative, we're unconsciously reinforcing the anti-Judaism that has too often sprung from it. When we label the Pharisee as the bad person, no matter who we put in the Pharisee bucket, if the Pharisee is the bad guy, and we all know the Pharisees were Jewish, then it's a very short step to Jews are bad, Jesus said so. So what would Jesus do? What if I told you that commentators think the very first line of this story was added by Luke, that it is Luke, the gospel writer who worked the hardest to reach a non-Jewish audience, the one who wrote his gospel 
during a time of intense conflict when the nascent Christian community was breaking away from the larger Jewish community. That it's Luke who deliberately shaped how we hear the story by adding that first sentence. What if I went on to tell you that Luke also added the second half of the last sentence, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. That was Luke also, not Jesus. And what if I tell you that the translation in the first half of that same last sentence the one that says the tax collector was justified rather than the Pharisee actually says in the Greek, alongside the Pharisee. So the story that Jesus told ends this way. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified alongside the other. Is your mind blown? Mine definitely was when I read that. Jewish scholar Amy Jill Levine writes that in Jewish custom, it was, and it still is, common to pray heartfelt prayers of gratitude for God's gifts. So when we hear the Pharisee praying, if we take Luke's direction away, Jesus may have exaggerated what he says to catch the listener's attention, but it's possible that this Pharisee is truly grateful that he's not been forced by systems and circumstances to follow other paths in his life. Levine writes, many commentaries presume that the Pharisee should begin from one stereotypical Christian perspective and see himself as unworthy and sinful rather than seeing himself from one traditional Jewish perspective, thankful to God and able to celebrate his gratitude. One could conclude that the Pharisee is only at fault because he judges the tax collector harshly when he does not know what is in the tax collector's heart. But conversely, readers do not know all that is in the heart of the Pharisee. She continues, Jews who emphasize the communal more than the individual, recognize that one person's sin negatively impacts the entire community, and so does one person's righteousness or faith have a positive impact on the community. She also reminds us that the story gives us no indication that the tax collector changed his behavior in any way after his prayers. In her 
reading, the Pharisees' extra good deeds combine with the tax collector's clear-eyed admission of his own sins to the benefit of the entire community. So both men are justified. That single word alongside says so much. It tells us that they were each justified, yes. But it also tells us that they are in relationship with each other as well as with God, even if they do not know each other or accurately know the secrets of each other's hearts. It tells us that justification is a communal endeavor, not an individual one. That interpretation really resonates for me because God's mercy and love extends to all of us, especially when we work together to serve the common good. Ecclesia and synagogue are not enemies. There is so much that we can learn from our Jewish brothers and sisters, starting with their profound emphasis on communal good and repair of the world, an emphasis that Jesus, who was a faithful Jew, undoubtedly shared. Both men are justified. Both men are beloved of God, just as every one of us is. How blessed we are to have Jewish scholars like Amy Jill Levine help us hear our own scriptures with fresh ears. We are very blessed indeed. Amen.